in, in case you didn't know that that's my son that just read a scripture, and he was so afraid that I was going to give him this long passage with all of these names. I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that to you, son, but uh, uh, I might surprise you one day. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 14 uh, this morning and tonight. Next Sunday, we're going to be uh, his Father's Day. And as you know, we have uh, a group of our people that left this morning to go to Savannah. About the time that they're getting back, we're going to have uh, a lot of our kids heading off to Oklahoma Christian uh, for part of the summer camp to begin. So we're going to have a lot of coming and going. But it's, it's Father's Day next, next Sunday. And I'm going to say some things to fathers about uh, about the great role, the great uh, the great responsibility, and the great honor that we have as fathers of children, and, and what that means in the kingdom of God. And then next Sunday night we're going to look at Romans chapter 15, and then the following week uh, Brad Roach is going to be leading our singing uh, because Ben is going to be traveling with his family up to the the second part of the the camp week up in Oklahoma City, and we're going to be looking at uh, the church with some, some final comments as we close down the book of Romans. So, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, acceptance and what Paul has to say about that in Romans chapter 14. Inside of your, your announcement sheet, your bulletin, there is an outline that you can use to take some notes as we go through this study. And as you're doing that and opening your Bibles up to Romans chapter 14, that's to begin with a word of prayer and ask God to bless us as we, we do this study. Father, we recognize in so many ways all of the blessings that come to us. And these are the blessings that are positive and, and full of joy. And yet we also recognize, at least intellectually, Father, we, we recognize that there are even blessings that come to us in, in times of trouble. Our prayer, Father, is, is to not be fair-weather disciples, but, but to commit ourselves in faith and trust, to obey Your will in all that we do. Rather, uh, rather than to find our hearts backing away and, and our trust diminishing when it becomes costly to be Your disciples. It's especially true when fellowship is hard. And when we find ourselves at odds in opinions and and sometimes in, in, in things that don't really matter all that much, but still they impact us in profound ways. And we pray to follow Your teaching and to follow Your Word with all of our strength, Father, in order to bring You glory and for Your presence to be seen in our church family. So as we study this morning, Father, we ask You to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know the name, William Buckley. It's a name that is synonymous with political conservatism. He was an author and a commentator. He launched uh, a, a conservative uh, political magazine known as the National uh, Review in 1955. Uh, became a little bit more prominent in the mainstream from about 1966 to 1999 when he hosted a, a, a political TV show called Firing Line. There's a fellow by the name of Evan Thomas who writes for Newsweek magazine, which, as you know, if you've read Newsweek, uh, is never to be confused with a conservative line of thinking. Uh, Evan Thomas wrote a very interesting eulogy of sorts when Buckley died in 2008. 
And in this, this article, which, which has meant a lot to me over the years as I've thought about it, uh, he writes about, he describes really these dinner parties that Buckley and his wife Patricia would hold and host in their home, and they would invite all of these wildly high-maintenance personalities from every ilk and from every persuasion to come and to gather at their table and to talk politics and enjoy a meal. And he writes, here's an excerpt of the article, he writes, and I quote, The Buckley dinner salons were held at Bill and Patricia's Park Avenue apartment, a ground floor masonette uh, at at 73rd Street in Manhattan. Literary sportsman George Plimpton might be there chatting with statesman Henry Kissinger or novelist Dominic Dunn. At the same time, standing in the corner might be a lumpy Trotskyite turned Catholic intellectual talking to a nervous Yale undergraduate. And I'll end the quote right there. What was uh, so noteworthy back you know, six years ago, seven years ago, when, when the article was first published, is that you have all of these incredibly different people with incredibly different backgrounds and cultures and points of view and temperaments that are able to gather around a table without killing each other and able to actually enjoy a meal together and actually to enjoy some conversation about politics or whatever it is that they might find important to discuss at that dinner. Now the question is how? How, at that dinner, were they able to do something that seems nearly impossible in just about any other venue, public or private, in the United States? The reason, this Evan Thomas writes in Newsweek, is that Buckley embodied a genteel, sort of a gentlemanly spirit of discourse at that table, and that set the standard. And that set the standard. Now, what occasionally happened for a couple of hours, a couple of times a year at 73rd Street in Manhattan is an even more profound and daily occurrence in the church of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul, as you know, and we've been talking about this for the last couple of months, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of Romans describing the power of the gospel and exactly what the gospel is all about. He says all human beings share something in common. They share in common, a separation from God because of this thing called sin. And it happened when we did not trust God's Word, but trusted the serpent's Word in the garden. But God in His righteousness, instead of kicking us to the curb or destroying us or annihilating us, reconciles us to Himself through great cost. His Son, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, with a heart full of love, pays our debt. We're the ones that owe the debt. But He pays in love our debt by paying the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross in our place. So that when we place our trust and when we place our faith in Jesus, we are made God's children once again. Now, one of the reasons that God's Spirit is poured into our hearts, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, is to reinforce that fact on a daily basis, that we are the children of God. And all of God's children come from all over the place, both Jew and Gentile, from every ethnic background, speaking every language, from every strata of society. They come into the kingdom of God. They come into the family. And all of God's children come in the same way through faith in Jesus of Nazareth. But the question is, 
How do all of these people with different backgrounds and cultures and points of view and temperaments form one body as a new family? Uh, One of the things that Paul says is that we have to know that the Gospel does not end its work with salvation. Up here on the screen is a statement that I want us to say all together. The Gospel changes the way that you see yourself. That's what the Gospel does. Let's say that together. The Gospel changes the way you see yourself. Paul labels this new identity that is couched in the Gospel as becoming a living sacrifice. That there's something about all of those Old Testament sacrifices that you read about in Leviticus and you read through the historical books of the Old Testament. That there's something in the Christian life that is like those sacrifices. And so he says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in light of all of the things that he's written about in the first 11 chapters of Romans about the meaning of the Gospel and the sacrifice and the atonement of Jesus, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, that is, everything about you, the totality of your life, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that this is your uh, true and proper worship. Now, beginning there in chapter 12, Paul begins to talk about the, the practical daily ways on how we live out the implications of being living sacrifices one another. How the members of the church, how people who call on Jesus as Lord and know that they are sons of God and daughters of God, how they are to conduct themselves as as family. In chapter 13, one of the big problems in any church in any era, not just the first century when Rome dominated the world, is how people that are divided by politics can remain one in Christ. We talked about this last Sunday night, that there were people in the church in the first century Rome that thought Rome was great. Thought that Rome was 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 a great help in in the, the, the peace and, and the globalization of the world. And yet there were others who had been displaced who were coming back into Rome who didn't think that Rome was all that great. Two differing views on the greatness of Rome in the church. How do they stay one? Chapter 15 that we're going to look at next week, how do people who are strong in Christ, who are mature in Christ, who have been in Christ for a while and have grown up in Christ and beginning to be conformed to His image and to resemble the Messiah, how do mature disciples deal with the failings of the not-so-mature disciple? So then we have chapter 14, which is this morning and tonight. How do mature disciples deal with differences of opinion with each other Mature Christians on, on either side of a disputable matter, how do they maintain the peace and how do they maintain the one-bodiness unity of the church? Well, let's discover the issue. The question is, what are disputable matters? What are disputable matters? Well, a quick definition. A disputable matter is an issue that is neither commanded or prohibited by God. There are some things, as you know, that are not disputable in Scripture. There are some things that you never back down from. There are some things that you never diminish. You never dilute these things. They are always and forever eternal truths that we embrace with all of our strength. But there are areas where it basically comes down to opinion rather than a thus saith the Lord. Now here's the deal. Problems arise when because of some personal experience or personal history or personal discomfort or concepts of Christian freedom, problems arise when opinions are transformed into requirements for fellowship. 
And in Rome, there are at least three disputable matters in this Roman church that threaten to disrupt the unity. Eating. Dietary laws. Is it okay to eat meat? Is it okay to, to eat meat and vegetables? Should it just be vegetables only? A second are sacred days. There, there are days that should be considered by the church and celebrated by the church. And others saying, no, 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 no. Or the drinking of wine. So eating sacred days and wine become these three disputable matters in the Roman church. These issues and others possibly begin then to create a progression of trouble in the church. It starts between two mature people in Christ. It begins with quarrels. Look at, uh, look at verse 1. Except the one whose faith is weak without doing what, church? Quarreling over disputable matters. Why is Paul saying except without the quarreling? Because they were not accepting and what they were doing is quarreling over these disputable matters. And when people begin to quarrel, I mean, just think about a married couple. Married couple, every once in a while, get bent out of shape. They get on the wrong page with each other. And what happens? They begin to quarrel with one another. And what happens when they begin to quarrel with one another? Somebody's going to cross a line and show some what? Some disdain and some contempt. Now, one of the writers on this passage, and, and I tend to agree with him here, one writer says that Paul would never refer to one side as weak or strong, but what he's doing is actually referencing the negative epithets being lobbed about. They were beginning to, to call each other by certain names in this church. And they're showing contempt to one another. So in verse 3, Paul says, the one who eats everything must not treat with what? Contempt. The one who does not. And what happens if you're quarreling with somebody and then you begin to cross that line? Some disdain. Some, some, some contempt. What do you begin to do? Judge. You begin to judge that person. Look again at verse 3. The one who does not eat anything must not what? Say it. Judge. The one who does. And when you begin to quarrel... And then you begin to show contempt. That means you, you, know, you no longer have the person's best interest in heart. That it's no longer about really reconciliation, but it's about winning. And you begin to judge that person. You're just a hop, skip, and a jump from separating and dividing. And that's why Paul starts the chapter off with these very simple words, except the one whose faith is weak. Disputable matters for Paul become opportunities for the Gospel to prevail. Disputable matters, matters of opinion, things that are neither commanded or prohibited by God, these disputable matters become an opportunity for the Gospel to shine. Now, what, you know, this chapter is just really rich. I mean, there's just so much. And in the time that we have this morning and tonight, we don't even really have time in those two sermons to delve down or drill down as deeply as we would like. But what we're going to look at beginning this morning... Three this morning, four tonight, the seven principles of acceptance. Now again, Romans chapter 14, verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Circle somewhere in your Bible or on your outline the word accept. That's a tricky word. I mean, there's a, uh, there's a sense, in, in a popular sense, that we can use that word accept to mean, well... I can accept the fact that he's a member of this church as long as I don't have anything to do with him or her. I accept the fact that there's always going to be somebody around that, that I'm just not going to get along with very well. 
But the word is much richer than that. It, it, it means to welcome into your circle. It means to welcome this person into your heart, into your huddle. The word implies warmth and kindness. And that's why right there at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul says, hey church, you need to be impressed by the fact that God accepts. Paul says when it comes to what you eat or don't eat, you don't judge. Why? Because God has what? Accepted them. We should be impressed. I mean, mightily impressed by those five words. For God has accepted them. I mean, when's the last time you just, you just reveled in the thought that you, you pondered, you meditated, you reflected in such a way that it warmed your heart and, and, and just triggered joy? That the Creator of the universe, the, the most powerful being that our minds can conceive, the eternal God, the Creator God, the all-powerful God, the omnipotent God, the omnibenevolent God, the Creator has accepted you and has accepted me. I think sometimes one of the greatest things that we can do as, as a church or even as an individual at the beginning of the day is just to have impressed upon our heart that, that the Creator accepts us. I was once visiting a church. Ellen and I actually were some years ago visiting a church where we, you know, we had some history with that church family. We were out of town. Uh, we entered the foyer a little bit late. Church had started with an opening prayer. The doors were shut. We waited in the foyer. And we noticed a young woman. It was a young woman that we knew. She was in the foyer. She waited with us. The prayer ended. The doors opened up. And we started going to the auditorium. And we waited for her to go in with us. And she said, Oh, I, I don't know if I can go in there. I, I, I'm going to stay out here. I, I'm not going to go in there and worship with those people. I said, you're a member of the church, right? She said, yes. I mean, weird. But after church, talked to her a little, little and found out what had happened. They didn't go with something that she thought they should go with, and she was mad. And so I, I asked, do you not go in there because you think those people are, are lost? And she said, oh, no, 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 I, they're saved. And so I asked, you can't accept people that God has accepted? Now, I don't know if, the, she probably just got mad at me. <laughs> you know. But the point is, we, have, we must be careful to not let our differences of opinion to nullify the acceptance of God, of that individual, into his heaven. What we have to do is to remember how God sees that brother or sees that sister. This is better than the golden rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. But in John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, right? And they're just, they're, they're aghast. I mean, they just can't believe. This is the worst thing ever that anybody could be asked to do. I mean, you wouldn't even ask the most menial servant to do this except in, in a dire case. And yet their leader, who they recognize as the Christ and the Son of God, he's the one that gets up and does this. And he says at the end of it, he said, I've given you an example that you're to follow. And then you drop down a little bit further and he says in verse 34 of John 13, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, that really 
puts a little bit of pressure down on top of us, doesn't it? I mean, we can, we can, we can define some level of loving another person that we're comfortable with. I mean, I can, I, can, I can love somebody over here and love somebody over there, and there are two different degrees of love based on the comfort and the relationship that I have with those people. Jesus says, scrape that off the top of your thinking and think about it this way. The way that I love you, self-sacrificially, all-consumingly, with your good and your, 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 your best interests at heart, to the point that it costs me, that's the way you're supposed to love each other. And so better than the golden rule is the understanding that we love each other the way that God has loved us. And the way that God has accepted each of us. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says, you know, be really impressed by the fact that God has accepted them. You may not be accepting them, but God is now who you're going to trust. But he says, also recognize the Lord that you have in common. That you both answer to the same, to the same Lord. Uh, many, 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 many years ago, when Jessica and Jordan were just we small children, playing one day in the house, and I overheard Jordan get a little upset with Jessica because she was wanting him to do something that he didn't want to do. Probably play Barbies. Maybe put him in a dress. I mean, I don't know. But he was having nothing to do with it. And so they were kind of bickering back and forth. And the next thing Jordan says is, you're not the boss of me. Mom is. And I'm thinking, ho, 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 ha, ha, ha. It's so cute, you know. Kids kind of arguing with each other. and Mom is the... And then Jessica says, well, Dad is the boss of Mom. At that point, I bolted out of my chair, ran into the room. Hey, 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 hey. No, let's cut this one out. No, 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 no. Hey, where did you hear? You didn't hear that from me. You know, <laughs> don't ever let those words come out of your mouth ever again, especially when Mommy is around. You probably already know this. I love Downton Abbey. I'm an addict. I've been a fan for years and years and years. I'm a little bit depressed that this is the last season. I like all of the characters, but I admit that I have a little trouble with this one. With this one. This one. There we go. Everybody knows who that, who that is, right? What's his name? Thomas. Why do we have trouble with Thomas? Well, he is a servant, and he's not even the head servant. But the problem is he wants to be the boss of everyone. And he, it's just so unsettling and it's so aggravating. Ellen says he's just so annoying. And it's so inappropriate. Now this is where Paul goes next in arguing for acceptance. He says in verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And then in verse 8, Paul reminds the, the Roman church that they all have the same Lord in common. The same Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, makes each and every one of them to stand in the church. And then Paul emphasizes that it is Jesus who is Lord over the totality of their life. He says, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the, say it, Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. 
so that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Recognize the Lord that you have in common. And then finally, this morning, identify with your family. You know, one of the sad things in the world is to see a family fail. Why? Well, because a a, a family has all of the resources and all the attributes to make it work. You have unconditional love. I mean, if there was not unconditional love, then babies wouldn't make it, right? Because if parents were looking for an immediate return on their investment, I mean, no baby is going to be able to return any of the love or the affection or the resources that are applied upon them. There's unconditional love and there's nurturing and there's forgiveness. I mean, think about your children. Is there anything that they can do that really you can't forgive them of? There's patience. There's emotional support. There's wisdom. There's advice. There's guidance. There's protection. All of these components are there in healthy families. And families are are designed in such a way that they take care of the members, not only in the good times, not only when everything is going great and smooth sailing, but also in the bad times. And and many of you know what that's like, don't you? First sign of trouble. uh, Trouble hits. Frightened. Anxiety begins to invade your heart. And what's the you need help. And what's the first thing you do? You call home. And yet, sad fact, reality of our world is that sometimes families fall apart. And when they fall apart, there's lots of collateral damage. It creates more and more drama and more and more anguish. But the thing is, everyone knows that families are supposed to work. So in the ancient world, at the time that Paul is writing Romans, there's this globalization that's going on that is changing the face of the world. The, the Roman Empire has given Roman roads that make it uh, feasible to, to go anywhere. The Roman peace makes it safe to travel those roads. The Greek language, everybody speaks it, everybody can communicate. So all of a sudden, the world is being connected. Nations and all these different people are coming together and, and people are moving to the cities in unprecedented numbers. And these people are moving away from home and many of them without their families and without those traditional emotional support systems, they're finding themselves without all of the blessings and all of the benefits of the family. Now Paul in chapter 12 has already referenced, as you know, that the church is a body. And the body is healthy when all of those parts connect with each other in healthy ways and they work together in healthy ways and and the body moves forward. Now Paul reminds them that in this place where many of them are without family, that when they come together on the first day of the week, they're sitting next to a brother, they're sitting next to a sister. That when they come together, they are the family of God. And so in verse 10, He says, why do you judge your brother or sister? Your brother or your sister? His point, if healthy families don't tear each other up over little things, but stick together through thick and thin, how much more so the family of God? You know, quite frankly, that's why I'm a little troubled when someone can leave their church family so quickly over things that don't really matter. 
It's like saying, you know, some kid at a dinner table, Mom, you know, the pork chops were a little too dry tonight at dinner. Not quite the way I like them, so I'm out of here. I think I'm going to try the Thompson family down the street. Paul is telling the church that one of the principles of acceptance is that these people that you worship with are your family. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. You have one father and you have an older brother by the name of Jesus who has modeled the way for that to happen. And that's really all they had to do is to think back over all of the things that he had written about Jesus had accomplished in the first 11 chapters. All they had to do was to think about Jesus. He is the brother who was forsaken for a period of time in order for us to be accepted by the Father. And there's a great passage out of Hebrews chapter 2. He says, The one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We're going to continue the study tonight by looking at the last four things that are the, form the principles of acceptance that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 14. But what we want to do right now is to offer an invitation. People that, brothers and sisters who have come here this morning may be struggling with some things in their own life. Where do you go when you struggle with things? You come to your family. And if you need the prayers of the church, the prayers of your family, this is the time to let us know, to talk to these shepherds down here at the front. Or it might be that you've never really believed the words of the Gospel until today. That there is an opportunity for your life to be different, your relationships to be different, your thinking different, your value system different. To enjoy the benefits of a clean conscience. To not know what guilt is in the face of God because God takes that guilt and drives it afar, our sins and drives them as far away from Him as the east is from the west. That happens when we trust what His Son has accomplished. And we trust it enough that we participate in His death, burial, and resurrection by being baptized and having all of those sins washed away and God putting His Spirit inside of us for all kinds of reasons, but to remind us on a daily basis that we're His children, that we're His sons, and we're His daughters. And if that describes you this morning, then as Ben comes up here and leads us in a song, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds. And for the rest of us, let's stand and let's sing out together. How lovely on the mountains are.